Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, we are going to talk about the uh, Papal Apology uh, for the residential schools, uh, or as I would like to call it, the so-called apology. Um, so yeah, this last week, uh, Indigenous delegates, uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit delegates have been in Rome. They have met with Pope Francis, uh, and he has issued what people are calling uh, an apology for the residential uh, school. So we are going to discuss this and discuss the Indigenous uh, struggle in general. Uh, with me today, I have uh, Lane Sheldon Houle from the Swan River First Nation, uh, and he's also an activist with Socialist Fight Back in Alberta. So welcome, Lane. Hello, good to be here. Yeah, so um, this Apology, as I said, is, is kind of a so-called apology. I will quote the Pope to be fair to him, although maybe we shouldn't be fair to him. Uh, he said he feels he actually doesn't use the word sorry. I don't think he did. So I'm not sure why it's an apology entirely. He said he feels shame for the role that a number of Catholics, particularly those with educational responsibilities, have had in all of these things that wounded you. Uh, and then he said that it was deplorable conduct of these members of the Catholic Church. Uh, with this in mind, uh, it doesn't sound so much like an apology from the Catholic Church, but a, a few bad apples statement, <laughs> similar to those of politicians about or police chiefs about the, con the systemic and systematic conduct of police officers against uh, black people in the U.S., for example, or indigenous people in Canada. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know. Do you want to maybe make a do you have anything to say about this? <laughs> you have comments like what's the reception from this apology or so-called apology uh, from indigenous leaders and, and activists? Yeah, I think this is um, this is an, uh, an apology that uh, is very much a non-apology is, I'm sorry you feel this way. I'm sorry that these bad things happen to you. It's unfortunate. Uh, very, you know, really shift the responsibility uh, away, you know, responsibility to do anything now, or, um, you know, or responsibility of people uh, today uh, to the past, right? Um, I think the reaction towards this has been, has been mixed for sure. Um, th there are people who are definitely uh, a little bit elated with with the Pope. Uh, we're happy about this. We see this as a step forward towards reconciliation. 
Uh, but more so, I think what you see is that the the fact that it took what, almost a full year since the, the uncovery of mass graves uh, for this apology to come out. Most most of the indigenous people are asking why it took so long, and why was this like like pulling teeth to get this guy to actually finally come out with it, um, you know. And, and on top of that, it's uh, it's like okay, it it was a shame. That's true, great. And what else, right? Like, what is the is the Catholic Church going to do anything to try and rectify any of its historical crimes? Is it, are there, is anything else going to happen? That's a, that's a big question. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it. And so that, that has people pretty upset. Yeah. I mean, he seems to suggest the next step is coming to Canada to apologize again this summer in July. Uh, he said he wouldn't come in the winter. Um, okay. I get it. But I mean, is that really doing anything? <laughs> I, I oh, okay uh yeah to, you you said the, the the reaction is mixed definitely a lot of if you look at the reaction from a lot of delegates that were happy for the apology i think a lot of people are like thank god it's, uh, I, and there's a general feeling of like it's about damn time i mean you even said it was been almost a year but since the discovery of the graves but you know the church knows about this they, they're the ones that perpetrated these crimes. So they must have knew about it before and they never came. So it's like pulling teeth to get an apology. Actually, that's what's happening. And on in this vein, uh, you said there's mixed reactions. Just to quote a couple of people to show that not everybody's happy about this. Uh, Soyuz Indian Band Chief Clarence Louis, after watching the apology, said he is angry and disappointed. Uh, not elated. <laughs> he said, and I totally, I agree with this. I think this is spot on. He said, come on, let's get real. It was a forced apology. It was a political apology. When someone is forced to apologize, I don't think that it is a sincere apology. Exactly. I think that actually explains a lot of what happened. Um, and another, another guy, uh, Penticton Indian band chief, uh, Greg Gabrielle, said apologies and empty words from the prime minister, government officials, or a trip to the Vatican will never heal the pain and hurt that our people were subjected to, were witness to and continue to endure. He continues, we are past apologies. There is no forgiveness for the murder and attempted murder of our children. We have no faith in the processes being taken by colonial institutions and are demanding that the Vatican, Roman Catholic Church, and Government of Canada move beyond empty apologies. So I think these statements, they're more in line with the reality in the sense that it's like uh, that the apology is, is, is in and of its sense, it's like, it's like tr the church trying to salvage itself rather than taking any real responsibility or action and the, the most, the more farsighted, I think, leaders in the indigenous movement and activists see right through this. Uh, and, and these quotes are, are showing that. Um, but yeah, what, I guess then we can lead on to like, what, what does that mean in terms of moving beyond empty apologies? Like why, why are people mad? Like the apology, I guess, is not enough, but what are people calling on? the Catholic church or the Canadian government to do concretely. Do, do you want to speak to this? 
Yeah, sure. I also wanted to say too, I think that's really the majority are, are not elated. Uh, th- that does represent a minority, but even among that minority, I do think that it's a temporary thing. I, I think that's the people who, who see this as a, as a great step forward in reconciliation are, are going to be disappointed with uh, the, the fact that it comes with nothing else. You know, in a week, two weeks, three weeks, the, the apology will be gone, but, but the, the, all of the, the crimes of, of colonization uh, are, are going to be still reaping their effects. Um, but in, in terms of what people are calling for, I think the, the question is, is of reparations uh, in a lot of cases, because the Catholic Church is a, a wealthy organization, uh, to, to put it lightly, it's the it's the largest non-governmental landowner worldwide. Uh, actually, if you took all of the holdings, the the uh, property holdings of the Catholic Church, and I guess smushed them all together, they would be larger than the province of Saskatchewan, which 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 is a substantial amount of land, uh, which obviously and obviously land costs a lot of money, um, and. You look at the track record of of the Catholic Church in terms of of actually, you know, uh, basically paying reparations to residential school survivors. It's not good. Uh, It's really bad. Actually, in 2005, they they agreed to to a court order to essentially pay twenty five million dollars to survivors. Um, And this this was punted essentially to their members. Uh, they they said that they would fundraise it, so they would they would try to actually collect donations from their members rather than paying it out of any kind of pocketbook or operating cost or, or 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 the sale of any assets or anything like that. And in, over the course of ten years, they raised three point nine uh, million dollars out of the twenty five that they were ordered by a court to pay. Um, and then in 2015, they actually appealed to the courts to get out of their, their legal requirement to pay this money. Um, and in that same amount of time, like 20, 2005, sorry, to 2015, when they raised $3.9 million for residential school survivors, they spent around $300 million for church construction and renovation throughout Canada, uh, like $162 million in Ontario, or sorry, in, in Toronto alone. Um, and so you see the, the priorities here. It's literally 1%, 3.9 million compared to, um, uh, or it, uh, it's a little bit more. It's, it's, it's like 1.6% out of 300 million. They actually spent more in Windsor, Ontario, than they did uh, for church construction than they did for all residential school survivors. Uh, so, so the track record is not very good in that regard. Yeah, even in relation to... I mean, this is quite scandalous, even, even in relation to other churches. I mean, I, I looked it up, the, the United Church, the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian churches, they agreed to pay because they were involved in residential schools as well. And they have paid, actually. <laughs> uh, and, but the Catholic Church, which fundraises more than almost any other institution in Canada, maybe even more than any, I don't know. It's very significant. Uh, can't pay. <laughs> and actually has directly materially economically benefited from colonization stolen land and the oppression of indigenous peoples won't foot the bill uh so with this in mind that apology really kind of stinks if not followed up with anything concrete and basically what he told me is they're they're rather reluctant to follow up with anything concrete so yeah we we really need to look into into what is behind all this you mentioned land. 
very important one. This is one thing that indigenous, some indigenous leaders are asking for that the, the, the church land that was given the, the land that was given to the church to run the residential schools. Why do they still have it then? Shouldn't it be given back? <laughs> no mention of this. Uh, I, I watched the Pope's speech. It's all this empty flowery language praising sorry indigenous peoples. Yeah, yeah, sorry about this, that, and the other thing. And that was all really bad. And, and you're really amazing. A lot of praise, uh, but no material anything almost actually there was nothing material <laughs> no 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 concrete steps taken to right the wrong um and yeah uh it seems like pulling more that you know if we think the apology was pulling teeth <laughs> to get any concrete commitments of land and resources from the church and and from the canadian government let's be honest here that is really, really, really like pulling teeth. They'll make a performative statement, but any concrete action is where they're like, oh, wait, the, the puck stops here. It will go no further. Um, I think another one that maybe you could speak to as well that some people are calling on that are upset about is, well, if they're apologizing, then how come they're not releasing documents, different church, different churches and and I believe even the Vatican itself is not releasing documents pertaining to the, the records <laughs> and everything about the residential schools. Uh, there are still many thousands of records uh, being kept under lock uh, and they're not releasing them. Uh, in, notably, it's been mentioned the Society Historique de Saint Boniface in Northern Manitoba is refusing to release thousands of records pertaining to residential schools. Uh, principally because they they uh, pertain to church leaders still alive. Uh, but I mean, in my mind, wouldn't that be more important? <laughs> that you can't really hold the dead accountable. Ultimately, they're, they're not with us anymore. But people that have perpetuated and contributed to and organized even these ultimately genocidal crimes are being shielded, it seems. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything to say about this? Because this seems to be a, a really key issue, especially as we're having these these mass graves unearthed. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we have to remember that the last residential school closed in either 96, 98, or 99. I think there was one in Rankin in 98 that was... Uh, that people argue was was not administered by the church, therefore not it doesn't count. But anyway, it, this was ongoing up until the late '90s, right? And so, a lot of people who you know, were were in their 30s and 40s in the, in the '90s are still alive today, uh, and it's so it could actually have implications for for them in terms of a, an actual court trial um, with, with these crimes. Uh, but I, I think the the reason that they don't want to release these documents is similar to actually the reason why they don't want to release any records about any priests who have uh, been uh, accused of sexual assault by uh, people involved in the church, right? It's that they want to protect their, their reputation. Uh, they, you know, they don't want any of this information to come out. It looks horrible on them. Uh, and because the fact is, is what is in the records is condemning. It's absolutely condemning, right? And, and yeah, I think, I think that's the simple reason for it. Yeah. It's, and I think if they give one, I mean, the Pope said some members of the church, it's like, Oh, 
but are some of those members of the church still alive today? And will, will there be criminal prosecutions against these people? No, no mention of that. No follow-up on this. It's, it's quite incredible because it seems like the first time any indigenous person does anything illegal or slightly wrong, they're persecuted to the full extent of the law, right? Even killed. We, we know the tragic case of Colton Bushi. But these high up priests and people like this, <laughs> they're they're untouchable. So with this all in mind, the this, this apology is really a non-apology because there's no commitment to anything. It's the I'm sorry you feel that way apology <laughs> with no commitment to, to to act differently and no repercussions for those people that that perpetuated the wrongs. Um, I guess moving on on a bit. One other thing that Indigenous representatives that were in, that met with the Pope last week have been asking for and has not been done uh, was to revoke uh, what is known as the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, now, uh, I don't know, do, do you want to speak to this? Like, what, what does this mean? What is the significance of the, the Doctrine of Discovery? And why are people asking to revoke that? Yeah, the the doctrine of discovery was uh, the the legal framework by which uh, European powers could uh, could basically steal indigenous lands. Um, and and I think in their words, it was it was it was to uh, take or occupy or or make sovereign vacant land. Um, but but yeah, it's it's the legal basis for for the, the colonization of Canada, right? The territorial claims and, and actually the Canada as a, as a country itself. Right. Um, and so the, this represents actually even problems today uh, for, for the country of Canada with, especially with unceded land claims uh, or un, unceded uh, territories in um, in British Columbia and in the North. Uh, and yeah, this, it's actually, it's quite condemning too, that they, and it really shows that this this entire thing is pulling teeth, right? It's just a painful process that they don't want to pay any attention to. They don't want to deal with. They don't want to do anything uh, because they it is just words, right? For for the Pope, right? The Pope is not going to have to deal with any of the any problems that occur in Canada, you know, in terms of uh, of land settlements or or any legal implications or or or, or social consequences generally. Uh, you know, for, for him, it would be just words, um, but, but you can really see this pulling teeth in that they, they won't uh, revoke the doctrine of discovery. Yeah, and I think from a Marxist point of view, what was the doctrine of discovery? So the doctrine of discovery was the, as you described, the legal framework, the ideological justification for the primi- what, what, what Marx described as the primitive accumulation of capital. So it was the through theft and enslavement <laughs> of indigenous people, uh, uh, the the slave trade with with uh, uh, the Atlantic slave trade was part of this a horrible, massive indigenous genocide, um, the the really raping and pillaging of the Americas uh, formed the original basis of what is now capital actually, <laughs> and and capital of the big capitalists who control the world was, and, and so capitalism, if you think about it, I mean, Marx described it coming onto the scene of history, dripping with blood, sweat, and dirt from every pore. And in this regard, 
that is what we're talking about. So from Mark's point of view, when we talk about uh, colonization, it's not just a buzzword or something like that, right? It's a real material process related to the foundations of capitalism. And, and capitalism today in Canada is based on this. So the doctrine of discovery is important in the sense that they can't repudiate it. I mean, even they, they might in words, as Justin Trudeau and now the Pope, I guess, are quite good at saying things in words, making a performative statement, maybe wearing a nice outfit <laughs> or dancing around or something, but, but, but not doing anything in the material world, not making any concrete commitments, right? So they could say, we revoke the doctrine of discovery, and it means nothing. And it means nothing, and nothing changes. Uh, but but ultimately, Canadian capitalism uh, requires uh, the content of the doctrine of discovery. It requires Indigenous land. The territorial integrity of Canada is basically based on that. Like, the, I think the, the, the conflict, which maybe we'll get to it in a minute, conflict with wet sweatin and the coastal ga- gas leak pipeline is is what is that that's a big capitalist company that is ramming a project through indigenous land so if you renounce the doctrine of discovery you have to renounce that if you renounce the doctrine of discovery without renouncing that it means nothing like this apology <laughs> um so um Moving on, uh, well, we've been talking for, for a bit about the, the papal apology, the so-called apology, and all of the different things flowing from what, how it's empty and, and, and what people are asking for, what Indigenous leaders and activists are actually wanting, you know, material things. And it's all, as we've explained, related to capitalism. Uh, uh, before we get into, I think, you know, we don't want to be too, uh, just, just talking about all the bad stuff. I think we can get into the state of the Indigenous movement in Canada. Uh, But first, I would like to take a short commercial break. Um, As we talked about last week, uh, we're going to start listing out new subscribers we get every week. Uh, And yeah, if people want to, uh, they can send us a message and we'll even read it out. We did not get any messages this week, but we did get eight new subscribers to fight back. So we had Eleanor, Sherry, Eric, Jansen, Todd, uh, Delia, Jorge, and Jonathan. Uh, thank you all very much for being subscribers to Fight Back. We're really increasing our subscriber base and you're all part of it. And yes, I encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast, get a subscription to Fight Back, help us. And yes, if you really want to help us out, become a Solidarity subscriber, get a monthly, uh, give us a monthly amount to help us do what we do, including this podcast. So yeah, go to marxist.ca and get your subscription. Uh, because the, the theme of this week's podcast is uh, on the Indigenous struggle, uh, um, I, I would also like to promote something very important, which is our organization, uh, which includes Indigenous and non-Indigenous pe- people, working class people fighting for liberation, fighting against oppression and fighting for socialism. Uh, a number of years ago, we put a lot of work and effort as an organization into producing a document called the indigenous struggle and the fight for socialism we actually debated it discussed it amended it and voted on it at one of our yearly congresses and now it 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 now we produce it publicly which is on our website you can read it and we also have it as a as a booklet called the indigenous struggle and the fight for socialism and i really encourage those interested in understanding a marxist analysis of this question to go to our website marxist.ca go to the store uh link 
and and you can find it in the booklet section and and get your copy of this booklet. Uh, among other things, we have a lot of good uh, material on our website. But I would really encourage people to purchase that uh, and 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 read this Marxist analysis of the indigenous struggle. Uh, but yeah, back into it here with Lane. Uh, so we've talked about a bit what is happening, uh, the, what the Pope is doing, what the Canadian government is doing, what indigenous leaders are asking for. Um, and obviously it's, it's all quite performative and we don't see a lot of concrete commitments, but what maybe if we could shift now onto what is, what is the state of the movement? Like what is on the ground happening to fight back against encroachment on indigenous land uh, to fight back against the Canadian state against capitalism. Uh, yeah, maybe do you want to just give us a brief rundown of what the state of the movement has been over the last few years? Because there has been some important developments. Yeah, for sure. Um, before that, I, I would like to, to shift the, or to actually just make a point about the bad things that we were talking about just a minute ago. Very quickly, it's that um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the church, but we shouldn't forget about the fact that actually the Canadian state ultimately is responsible um, and actually, most Canadians understand this. There's a poll that came out that said that 90% of Canadians believe that the federal government was, was liable for the damage caused to residential schools. So the church certainly did play a role, um, you know, in, especially like they had, did administer the schools. But the Canadian government is, is ultimately responsible. They, they directed the church. Uh, you know, they, they held the program in place. They, they implemented it. Um, and, and so, yeah, we should not forget that, that it was the Canadian government, uh, and it still is the Canadian government's, uh, their responsibility uh, to, to rectify the situation. Um, but to, to discuss the, the state of the Indigenous movement, I think we've seen an explosion uh, in the past couple of years, um, really a, a sea change, actually. Um, We've had movements, you know, encroachments and standoffs in the past, but but I think in in two in the past two years, uh, they've really escalated to to a pitch that um, that hadn't happened in the past. I, two two of the big movements I think that are, that are worth highlighting are, are the struggle of the Wet'suwet'en um, against Coastal Gaslink, and, and like you said, probably five minutes ago. You know, here you have indigenous people, uh, you know, on their their traditional lands. You have a big capitalist company that wants to to basically violate their rights, and you have the Canadian state by their side, um, armed to the absolute teeth, um, helping them do this. Right? Most people, I imagine by now, have seen the images of of Canadian um, uh, police. You know, the RCMP. They look like paratroopers. They they look more like uh, they you know they're prepared for for an invasion right or for, for battle. They look like they're prepared for war, um, and, and there there's a, a very there's a very real reason for this, and it's because this is the the largest private sector investments in Canadian history. It's a, a forty billion dollar gas pipeline uh, that is going to run from Dawson Creek to to Kitimat, BC. Uh, it's like a, like a thousand kilometers long, and it's going to export liquid natural gas. Uh, well, that's the plan, anyway. Um, and the, with an investment that's uh, that's this big, the, the stakes are, are quite high for for Canadian capitalism, right? For for CGL, um, for you know Trans Canada, the kind of the parent company, uh, before they sold off 
most of the stakes. Uh, and, and for the Canadian state, who is ultimately there to, to support the Canadian capitalism. And so protection of their investment is, is paramount. And so Indigenous people, initially the, the hereditary chiefs, well, they still do, uh, oppose the project uh, because it's, it's basically it's a, it's a natural gas pipeline that goes through uh, the headwaters uh, for, uh, for the territory that, that have been historically important for them. Uh, and any, any sort of rupture, any sort of uh, environmental incident would be a complete disaster for people living in the area. You can imagine a liquid natural gas port, you know, and, and methane dissolving into, into Rocky mountain streams uh, where salmon spawn, it, it would, it would be a monumental disaster for the Wet'suwet'en people. And so the hereditary chiefs actually in discussions with, um, with CGL, offered a go-around path. A lot of people don't know this, that so they offered a go-around path for uh, the pipeline to take. And it would have costed around 2% of the, of the project's total initial budget, uh, around $800 million, uh, which really isn't much to, to TC Energy, if we're being honest. Uh, and they refused because they didn't felt, feel like they had to. It would take more time. It would take more consultation. Uh, and, and they thought they could actually just ram through the pipeline. Um, well, the Wet'suwet'en uh, people, they initiated a series of blockades uh, to, to stop this, to stop the invasion, really, of their lands. Uh, and then eventually, uh, in, in 2021, uh, there were um, solidarity blockades that took place all across Canada uh, that, that really brought, almost brought the, the whole country to, to a grinding halt. Um, and, and could have been a precursor for even, even a, like a, a revolutionary situation. It, it was really quite significant. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, I think the, the key difference here between the, what happens with, with the blockades, the, 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 you know, all the C to C to C blockades that took place. Sorry, my, my Facebook messenger is, is ringing. Uh, the key difference between that and the, uh, the movements of the past is actually really the, the sea change that's occurred in the consciousness of, of the rest of Canada, uh, because uh, with movements like like Oka, um, you know, in, in the, the 80s and 90s, the public sympathy was not there. It, it was it was a small minority. It was a it was a minority of, of, of the broader Canadians who actually would support Indigenous people uh, and whatever cause. Uh, but in this case, it, it wasn't majority. Majority, uh, and they expressed that solidarity actually very physically, right? By blockading uh, roads, railways, uh, you know, with with money, with with material support, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and th and then another one is land back. Which it, it's a very similar uh, case. You have a capitalist company encroaching on indigenous land. This one's been ongoing, I think, since well, really since uh, the the nineteenth century land settlement that took place and. There was a, a movement in, in 2005 and 2006, uh, but it was recently renewed uh, as the developer wanted to start continuing its encroachment and, and building housing, housing complexes um, uh, on Six Nations lands. Um, and once again, there's a, a movement of, of blockades of resistance against it. Um, it's the OPP spending something around, uh, I think $4 million a month or so, uh, trying to, to put it down, enforce injunctions, uh, trying to arrest Skylar Williams, uh, trying to bring forward charges against him and, and put him in jail. Skylar Williams is a leader uh, of, the, of the blockade movements. 
uh, and and actually in 2021 uh, experienced a, a, a victory. Um, actually, the the developer canceled certain projects, refunded customers, um, and and stopped. However, in the past few months, there there has been I think a little bit of a, a an ebb. Uh, movement has subsided. Um, you know, on the on the basis of of stopping the developments or or uh, success in in the past. Um, the the movement hasn't hasn't kept up the momentum that it had previously, uh, and with that, I think you can see that the these companies and the, and the Canadian state they're they're playing the long game. They're they're continuing to push forwards, and and any every inch that they're given, they're going to take. Uh, and and with that, uh, just just two weeks ago, I think Foxgate developers um, reapplied for the for the same injunction. Um, uh, to, to basically to in their attempt to continue construction right to to def- defeat the blockade movement to defeat 1492 land back lane uh, and and eventually build these houses and and fill their pockets with loads of money um and the same is true of, of coastal gaslink right actually coastal gaslink is currently under construction uh there there was an eviction last november uh, that took place, but you know, of course, the with the a subsidization of the movement, with a, a lack of momentum and, and a lack of solidarity, uh, and a lack of movement from from um, you know, especially you know, a lack of solidarity from the the rest of Canada. Uh, the, without the momentum of of what we had in say the summer of two thousand twenty one, the the capitalists are, are going to continue. And so they restarted production um, and it's still being built uh, and it continues to be built. Yeah, two very important uh, indigenous movements that you mentioned, Wet Sweat and Land Back. Um, so it's, a, and yes, these movements have had a broad support from the, the, the wider, even labor movement. I know Land Back had uh, support from like QP, Ontario Federation of Labor. Um, there were lots of people, a fight back did this, we went and visited and, and, and provided resources. We ra- raised money for land back, but there was, yeah, broad support from the, 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 the rest of the working class in Canada uh, for these movements. And that is why they were strong. I did, they did press charges or they tried to press charges against Skylar Williams and they ended up dropping them. Um, but I think it was, it's precisely because of the movement, right? So I guess the big takeaway is uh, indigenous movement is strong in this, in this, in the ability to spread to the rest of the population. And so what we argue as Marxists is that the working class must rally to the cause of the indigenous people. And we must build a broad movement uh, for indigenous liberation and against capitalism in general, which is, we would argue, the main culprit, the main economic driving force behind indigenous oppression today. Um, I guess this leads on to another thing. There has been, in the middle of all this, there's been a, it's, it's connected to the Pope's apology. Uh, last summer, you had uh, the summer of 2021, you had the, the discovery of these un- mass unmarked graves, which now is, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what the number is at, but they're, they're predicting at least 10,000. Uh, that's not entirely, I don't know if that, that's not really the ones that have been found, but that's what they're predicting so far. Uh, 10,000, let's be honest, dead children. Um, and yeah, really, that is uh, that is this this 
the situation that has ar- has arisen uh, where they found all these the 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 dead body that's been a shock i think to the consciousness of people that probably knew something about the residential schools obviously indigenous people knew about the residential schools but it's really the the poles have shifted it's like whereas you would have a poll that would say and it would be you know it'd be confusing uh now it's not confusing anymore everyone says look it is what it is canada committed genocide we're on the side of indigenous people and and really uh, uh, like never before with Wet'suwet'en, with Lambac, with the, the discovery of these uh, these graves of Indigenous children uh, near all the residential schools, really the, the the chance to have the opportunity to create that united movement uh, of Indigenous and non-Indigenous working class people fighting against oppression, and yes, fighting against capitalism in general, uh, has never been more uh, present, I think, never been more possible. Um, but yeah, that leads me on to I guess, yeah. What's the, what is the, what is the, what have the government and the capitalists been doing to deal with this situation, which, which is worrying for them, right? Like they, they said that uh, there was a statement about what Sowetan that came out. I think it was from an internal RCMP document that said that they were worried about a convergence. What that means. <laughs> They're worried that the movement spreads because they can see it spreading and they know that it's dangerous if it spreads. Uh, it's dangerous for the state and it's dangerous for capitalism, right? Uh, and so the, the state, the government, the liberal party, <laughs> the uh, and the capitalists realize they needed to do they need to do something. Uh, they can't simply repress this movement away like they maybe would have in the past. The support is too broad in the population. It might just inflame it and and cause it to be, you know, in the era of the George Floyd protests and revolutions occurring around the world. They don't want to create that sort of situation. So I guess that leads into like, but what have they done? Because they have to do something. So maybe, do you want to say a few words about what is the main strategy uh, from the Canadian government and the Liberal Party in particular been? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think... You know, first and foremost, uh, when when bodies were discovered in Kamloops last summer, the, there were a lot of words, um, sentiments, um, postulating or uh, posturing, rather, uh, it, as we've come to expect from from Justin Trudeau. But uh, as the 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 anger picked up, um, you know, as churches were set on fire, um, you know, as as people were just lashing out at any representative of the, any representation of the colonial system, you know, statues of Queen Victoria and Egerton Ryerson. Uh, they, they were really pushed to, uh, to, to do a little bit more. And, and by do a little bit more, I, they, they don't, uh, they, they didn't do anything good and concrete for indigenous people. Unfortunately, uh, what they've attempted to do uh, in the past period and what they're really driving at is, is trying to to create an indigenous bourgeoisie, essentially a, an indigenous ruling class. I think that's the main strategy, um, and and you've seen this from, for example, like the uh, the appointment of Marie Simon as government general or, or governor general. Uh, this is the typical tokenism, um, uh, you know, representation kind of angle uh, that's you know indigenous people. Now, now they have somebody in the government, and, and the irony is, is that this is a, a colonial, a colonial position, uh, you know, from uh, 
you, you know, Canada's relationship uh, to, to Britain, the, the country which initially colonized, you know, controlled the colonization of Canada. Um, and, it, and it's very much a colonial position that, that now suddenly an indigenous person sits in. You know, historically, uh, imperialist countries would use the most affluent and influential um, people in, in colonies, you know, colonized people to administer their colonies. So I guess you could say that that process is complete. Um, but but further than that, you know, the, the, that's just one government bureaucrat. There, there's also this, this real, real drive to actually kind of get a certain layer of Indigenous people, again, the, the most affluent, the most influential, to, to actually become a proper ruling class, uh, which doesn't really exist yet, uh, although, you know, they're, they're really trying to accelerate the process. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're pushing for basically Indigenous entrepreneurship. Uh, and you've had all sorts of, of, of programs come out, uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, and, and the private sector, it's actually, it's actually catching, a, it's reverberating in the private sector as well, uh, this strategy and, and all sorts of celebrations from, from the, the liberals. Uh, you know, for example, there's the appointment of a, an Indigenous uh, woman to the corporate board of RBC. Now, RBC is actually invested in Wet'suwet'en. Uh, or sorry, in, C- in the CGL pipeline, uh, in the coastal gasoline pipeline. So whether an indigenous woman is on the board, on the corporate board, or w- whether she's the owner, actually, doesn't really make a difference. It's the same pipeline. You know, it's the same pipeline that that's you know uh, that is in a, uh, invade that's um, violating land rights. Right? It's it, it doesn't make a difference who owns it. And another example uh, is Clearwater. Actually, you've seen this uh, this uh, you know tension um, between a billion dollar corporation, uh, uh, local fishermen, uh, and and Mi'kmaq fishermen uh, in Nova Scotia. Uh, and the government solution was really to to facilitate a deal, uh, basically for for the Mi'kmaq to acquire um, Clearwater, uh, and and they gave them the capital to essentially to, or, or they lent them the cap, the capital to buy it. Uh, and so now the, the, these Mi'kmaq first nations are in debt to the, to the Canadian governments, but it's in control of this, this, uh, uh, this fishing conglomerate. And, and once again, like, you know, we're, this is going to eventually results in, you know, aff- this it's capitalism, affluent layers, uh, the, the most well-off layers are, are going to benefit. They're going to make the profits, uh, while the working class, uh, you know, working class indigenous people, working class fishermen, are, are going to be exploited. They're going to be paid the the least amount that they could possibly do in order to maximize profits. Uh, and and this is their their general approach is because if they can actually create an indigenous bourgeoisie, they can create basically like points of reference. You know, like it, it can help them with with actually the the uh, this kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps logic of capitalism that, that doesn't actually apply to indigenous people now, uh, at least not in really a major way. There's, there's no, not a ton of successful indigenous people who could, uh, who could, uh, who they could point to and say, you know, one day, you know, if you work hard enough, you can be like, uh, this guy. Right. Uh, and so I think that that is their, their general strategy. Um, and, and they've, they had pushed, they've been pushing on this really, I think since the nineties, there, there have been scholarships, certain programs to, to try and foster a layer of, of bureaucrats, uh, foster, a, you know, again, you know, a more, 
uh, influential layer that's that would be closer to the ruling class uh, that that could basically help them with with potential like social movements in the indigenous community. But it has accelerated to to an extreme degree, uh, really, since the, the the discovery of the graves and the movement that preceded it. Yeah, so I think you summed it up well. They are worried. They are they're scared, actually, in a way. <laughs> the Canadian capitalism doesn't want a mass movement. Uh, and what better way of ensuring your resource, private resource development, capitalist projects can go through if you give it a indigenous veneer? All right. Uh, so, I mean, we didn't even mention Project Reconciliation. That's what it's literally called. Is a group of indigenous bourgeois that want to. I don't know if they want to own or be a major partner in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't think an indigenous pipeline is that different. In many ways, it's almost it's it, it almost worse because it 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 confuses and mollifies the resistance to the project. Uh, and it makes those indigenous groups or people that have signed on more reliant on capitalism and on pipelines which violate indigenous land uh, and could, you know, as we mentioned already, with what's wet and poison the water, if there's a spill and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, really, this is the, the overall approach, especially of the liberals. The liberals are quite smart. They, they know how to rule. They don't go in with the mailed fist all the time. They go in with, uh, I think, uh, Howard Adams described this in his book, The Prison of Grass. Uh, Howard Adams was a Métis Marxist where he describes that, you know, they rule through people. They rule through the band councils, which are colonial institutions in of themselves, and they rule through uh, more well-off layers in the Indigenous community. And they have an interest in creating those layers and pushing those layers up. In many ways, it reminds me of the, you know, you had the civil rights movement in the U.S., you had the black struggle movement uh, and you had uh, the in principally the Democrats, but they they promoted a layer of, of of black people up. And now they basically use these people to claim that something's being done. People like Obama, essentially, <laughs> uh, uh, and to claim that something's being done and to claim, oh, look, you know, we're we're all diverse and we fight racism. Meanwhile, nothing has changed for the masses, for the oppressed masses. So I think that is the danger with that approach, but maybe we can. So yeah, that's the uh, fight back is written on this. We've had indigenous members of our group right on this. You can go to our website, marxist.ca and read about the liberal project to create an indigenous bourgeoisie. Um, but yeah, maybe we can. So, you know, you have the movement, you have some good, you have good and bad. You have a, you have a, you have a struggle actually, right? Of It's a class struggle ultimately of living forces. Uh, and this leads to, uh, well, you have the, the capitalists doing what they're doing. You have the liberal party doing what they're doing. You have the movement pushing back and scoring some successes at time. You have the spreading of solidarity sentiments amongst the general population. It's all very good. I guess this leads us back to like, but what do we do, right? You know, there's been a lot of talk. It's, it's like a kind of buzzword these days about decolonization. You almost can't read a statement on the indigenous, the situation of indigenous peoples in Canada or like what or what the solution is without seeing this word. Um, uh, and this is somewhat connected to the creation of indigenous bourgeoisie, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's often say we need to decolonize. We need an indigenous perspective. Uh, 
And the liberals seem to have really taken that on board in a very performative way. But I don't know, do you want to maybe speak to, yeah, what is what does decolonization mean? What is what is this generally? Uh, what does that mean when people put that forward as a solution? I wish I could tell you, to be honest, um, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, I think to 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 say like the 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 entrepreneurs, uh, <laughs> the to to the people who you know are are backing Project Re- Reconciliation or involved with it, for them that is uh, decolonization. You know, the build the building of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is decolonization. Uh, but but I think to the the majority of people, it, it means something. A little bit different. It, it is really quite an amorphous term. Um, in, in the past, in, in the 30s and the 40s, uh, and and later on as well, like it, it was a word that actually described the the end of formal colonial rule. So, the French pulling out of Vietnam, pulling out of their their colonial holdings in in Africa, and and actually a, a formal um, self governance or self rule from these countries. Um, that, that had previously just been colonies. Uh, but, but really it's transformed today to, to mean a whole hell of a lot of things. Um, it's typically, I think the most common thing that, about decolonization is uh, some, some type of, of acts uh, which, which eliminates something, you know, quote unquote colonial, I guess, uh, like, like having Turkey with Thanksgiving um, or um Gosh, it's tough to, to think of an example actually of, of how these things are colonial because it can get quite ridiculous. But I, you've seen I've seen a, an article in the Globe and Mail about how having a lawn with with grass is is colonization because of course that didn't exist prior to colonization. Uh, therefore, we need to decolonize our lawn. So plant native grasses. There's nothing wrong with planting native grasses. I really don't care. There's probably some ecological benefit, but let's be honest, is this actually solving the, the question of colonization? The, the, you know, the problems of indigenous people today? No, it, it's not. It, like, I think the, the problems of indigenous people today can be boiled down to, boiled down, can be, can be described as really, like it's, there's really three main things. It's, it's, it's the question of, of water, uh, of general poverty, um, I forget the third one. Uh, I, I did a presentation on this a while ago, but I, I'm blanking on what, what, what the third one I described was. Uh, but Maybe. Yes, that's it. The, the question of encroachments, what we've been discussing this whole time. Uh, anyway, um, is this doing anything for, for these things? And, and the answer is absolutely not. You know, changing the, the way you cut your grass or... Or, or even like a, another more common one is, is decolonizing the curriculum, right? Is removing the, the white authors uh, in, uh, in, you know, that's, that have books that are, that are taught in certain classes and, and replacing them with di- indigenous authors. There's nothing wrong with reading different books. Again, but what's, what is this really changing uh, to be like, if you take a, uh, you know, take stock of, of what, what happens here, it's just reading different books. It's it's not actually striking any sort of blow, um, you know, at at any of the problems that Indigenous people face today. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's the that's my main problem with uh, how decolonization is typically used. And, and of course, it does mean more concrete things to to other people, um, but but it is very much amorphous uh, and, and undefined. It it could be anything from 
from changing the way that you you cut your lawn to to building Trans Mountain Pipeline to to other things too, right? Yeah, when I first heard the term decolonization, I thought, yeah, good, I agree with this, right? Colonization was part of the primitive accumulation of capital, so that means dismantling capitalism, <laughs> right? Uh, fighting for the collective ownership, public ownership of the means of production, democratic planning um, with land and resource rights to indigenous communities to be able to operate autonomously uh, <laughs> uh, and control their own communities culturally whatnot. Uh, uh, but, but then when I read more about it and the more that I hear people talk about it, it doesn't mean that at all. That's not what people mean. It, and there's a, there's a danger there that that is co-opted as a sort of per performative word that basically liberals, I mean, small L liberals, but also I think some people in the liberal party maybe even use that word uh, to just sort of color yourself. It's almost like saying, Oh, I'm intersectional. Like Hillary Clinton said that. Uh, I think it was an even attack against Bernie Sanders. But yeah, when you when you divorce when you divorce the struggle from like a class struggle against capitalism, then then liberals are able to to basically co-opt these sorts of terms and make it mean uh, focus on the form, right? Oh, like you mentioned, RBC, we can have a indigenous person on the board of governors. We're being we're decolonizing the bank. I'm like, you can't decolonize a bank. It's a bank. Like, I mean, that doesn't that's not decolonizing the bank. It's just allowing the bank to seem as though it's better when it isn't. So I think this leads into like, what do we actually do? Uh, what do Marxists propose in the fight for indigenous liberation and the fight against capitalism? Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to maybe start off here and then I can come in too? For sure. Um, I think you you actually outlined it um, probably 10 minutes ago-ish. Uh, the, the key word is convergence. Um, the That RCMP, these leaked RCMP documents uh, that, that show what they're most fearful of, I, I think they indicate actually probably what, what's the most expedient and, and best solution uh, for oppressed people in Canada for, for working class, for, you know, working class indigenous folks. Um, it's, it's actually the, the convergence of, of the indigenous movements uh, and really the labor movements. Um, it, it, we need a, a broad social movement against capitalism, against these encroachments, you know, for justice, for clean water, um, you know, uh, against oppression, um, you know, composed of, you know, the, the multiracial working class. I think that's what it is because indigenous people as a, as a portion of society are, are, you know, fairly small. It's, it's around 5%, um, probably a little bit more, uh, and 5% of a population uh, of that 5%, you know, really only, only 2% at any given time can be politically active, can be, you know, traveling around, can, can go to demonstrations, can, uh, you know, like can can do all of these things which are required to, to actually build a some sort of political movement. Um, and so that two and two percent or even less is is really not enough to to actually create a mass movement, you know, to actually do something uh, which which would put significant pressure on the Canadian government or you know eventually overthrow it, uh, which I think would be the the optimal thing. Um, and so we need a, a broader base actually to, to work from. And the, that broader base is the, the entire working class. 
uh, in Canada. I think the fact is, is that there, there are no fundamental differences between the interests of Indigenous people uh, and the interests of the working class in Canada. Uh, you know, even the, the CGL uh, workers, the, these, these pipeliners who, who are on Indigenous territory building this pipeline, um, they really don't have fundamental interests uh, uh, opposed to Indigenous people. You know, what I mean, under under a more rational, democratically planned society, we could use the go around path, right? Or we would decide not to build this pipeline that we didn't need to export LNG, right? We could. There, there is more than enough to go around. There's more than enough you know, resources, clean water. Uh, the the productive potential uh, that that we have in Canada is enormous. You know, there's nobody should be living in poverty. Nobody should be living without access to clean water. Um, uh, in Canada, and and yet there there are working class and indigenous people all throughout the country who who are who are very much suffering from from food insecurity from uh, you know poor conditions. I, I mean, I so I, I live in Edmonton. I I don't live on reserve, but but I have a lead pipe that actually brings water to my house. And the same is true actually for most of Canada for also like all of the provinces. There's there's lead pipes that that are bringing water into to people's houses, which. It is not good. Uh, there, there was that study or that that article that came out that showed that lead is in the water, uh, which is quite bad. And that we don't need to live with lead in our water, and we and we definitely don't need to live uh, in a country where we need to boil our water just in order to drink it. So yeah, that, that, I think that's what we need. We need a broad mass movement uh, of working class and, and indigenous people against Canadian capitalism, um, you know, against bad things and for good things, really. Yeah, I think that really sums it up there. Uh, we need to, to bring it back to the, the papal apology and the things that Indigenous people are demanding now, that Indigenous leaders are demanding now. I believe only a mass movement, no faith, actually, no faith in the Liberal government, no faith in the Catholic Church, no faith in the Pope's empty apologies. But the things that have worked, if we look the past two years, we've mentioned mass mobilizations, connected with a broad movement of people across the country, indigenous and non-indigenous, right? Against encroachment on indigenous lands, against the capitalist state and against the capitalists who are the ones behind this violation of indigenous land. Uh, so yeah, a broad-based movement, you know, the RCMP is worried about convergence. Let's give them convergence. That's what's needed. And we can have no faith in the government and no faith. And I think as I quoted, uh, uh, one chief earlier, we don't have faith in these these institutions. They're not our institutions. They're not the institutions of Indigenous people, and they're not the institution of the working class. They're the institutions of the Canadian capitalists. And I think that is a very important concept. And therefore, we also have no faith in the Indigenous bourgeoisie who are jumping into these institutions, who are happy to be a part of this, and we, we are against the liberal project to create an indigenous bourgeoisie, which won't lead anywhere good. So, yeah, we fight for working class solidarity, for a real convergence of struggles on this basis. The movement is, as we've talked about it, the strongest when the whole working class supports indigenous struggle, uh, supports indigenous liberation. I think we've seen one example that we haven't match, mentioned yet, Baffinland, the mine uh, in the north, where they had... Uh, there was a conflict between the community and the, well, actually not even between the community, the, the, the indigenous council was supporting it and actually kind of selling out, 
but then there were there were working class indigenous groups that organized boycott or organized the blockades uh, of the mining project of the airport actually, uh, and there were workers that were actually stranded, non-indigenous workers that were from the south that were stranded there, and they many of them penned a letter saying they were in full solidarity with indigenous people. So I think that that is one example of that that desire for unity and solidarity that should be built upon uh, by the labor movement and by the left in general in Canada. And that is something that fight back fights for is that we, we want to fight for a genuine uh, indigenous liberation, which is, which we believe is connected with a fight against the capitalist system and ultimately a fight for socialism, right? Which means uh, not private ownership over the means of production, which even if you have indigenous ownership will still lead to horrible things. Uh, We believe it's democratic collective ownership over the means of production and rational uh, planning to decide what we wanna do with the massive amounts of wealth that workers produce, um, which is now expropriated from us and taken from us. So really, I think this is uh, this is the takeaway from this. If if we don't want to just be f- falling back on empty, half or non apologies and performative statements, and re- waiting waiting until the Pope comes for his apology in Canada, uh, with no real concrete change, we we really need to fight to build that convergence, to build that mass movement, and it starts uh, it starts with us discussing these things, right? So. I appeal to those of you listening to this podcast that like what you hear, that are interested in joining us in this fight to, yes, reach out to us, go to our website, marxist.ca, get in contact with us, get a subscription to our paper and help us build this movement. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week. So we hope that you tune in again.